today's episode. The best tool to start looking at soil health is a speed. Give it a smell. I'm, I'm a great believer in smelling a soil. You're right. A lot of, a lot of guys are saying that there is improvements, but what actually are they? What, yeah, what are they physically seeing that is making a difference? Welcome to Cropcast. I am Tiffany McTaggart, and today we are joined by Audrey Littrick, Director of Earthcare Technical, and David Ross, Regional Manager and Senior Consultant with SAC Consulting. I'm very excited today to be talking to them about healthy soils. Hi, David and Audrey. Thank you for being here today. Uh, David, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Uh, my name's David Ross. I'm a regional manager for SAC Consultant in the northeast of Scotland. Um, but my kind of interests are really around agronomy and um, uh, soils and, uh, yeah, uh, learning a bit more about them and helping farmers improve their improve productivity, productivity through uh, improved soils. And Audrey? My name's Audrey Lidrick. Um, I too worked for SAC for I think total of about 16 years and also Aberdeen University um, and my interests really are in soil health, soil health management, again leading to hopefully leading to good crop productivity, good crop quality. Uh, we've got a particular I now work for a company called Earthcare Technical, which I set up with a, with a, a friend. And our particular interests are soil health, soil health management, um, and also use of organic materials on land in particular. But I also still work as um, a nutrient management specialist dealing with, with fertilizers of all types, not just organic fertilizers, but also synthetic fertilizers and anything that comes out of a bag, really. And I still... Um, I'm one of the people in Scotland that, that teaches on the facts course, which is run through through SAC. So uh, we're talking about soils today. So can we start at the basics about what soils are and what makes up soils? Okay. Well, soils are really what they are is a, a medium for, for plant growth. But we've got to think about them a bit more broadly than that, I think. And in fact, it's it's when I've been driving home this this morning from uh, from the central belt, I realised that some of the soils which were surrounding the roads on either side are not working quite as well as they should be. They may well be providing a good medium for plant growth, support and warmth and water and nutrients, and a, a medium in which roots can grow. But we also rely on soils to provide ecosystem services for every single person that lives in our country and for the wider planet. And uh, I could see certainly that some of the soils round about on the roads that I was driving on, the water was not filtering through those soils as well as it should. So soils should also provide a whole range of ecosystem services for people, um, for all people. And that includes things like um, a place for soil organisms to grow, which, which is part of the food web, really, and also a place where pollutants can land and be perhaps broken down, um, and also a medium in which water can land on it and then and then move quickly through, relatively quickly through the soil and not be held in such a place that it can cause problems. And certainly today, there's a tremendous amount of flooding, not just on the fields, but unfortunately also on the road, and there's a lot of soil in that water too. So soils should be healthy enough to provide a whole range of ecosystem services as well as being a good medium 
for the growth of of crops. So I think it's 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 really important because as farmers we think of the we think of soil as just the the like you say the medium that we grow a crop on, but but sometimes it I think this year particularly has has brought into focus that soil's doing so much more than that and that we've had a really dry period. Yeah. Um a really, a really a droughty period in a lot of, a lot of the country which which has really shown the soils that are that bit more resilient and are able to, to, to give us something back in a poor year. Um and again uh, yeah the rain that there's been this is the first time the rain there's been just in the last few days this is the first time you've seen water sitting in fields um that that we haven't seen since uh, I don't know January February of, of this this year it's the first significant rain that there's yeah. been and if if we are going to have issues we um or, or or greater issues with climate change and 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 these different periods of weather where we either get periods of long periods of wet weather or long periods of dry weather or having our soils in a, in a place or a health that is able to deal with those um deal with those situations is going to be is going to come become more and more important and what you're 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 saying is absolutely right david what what brings the whole soil health crisis to farmers notice is extreme weather events so so basically a really healthy soil is best able to cope with stresses and i mean stresses of all sorts so perhaps uh, stresses associated with drought stresses associated with exceptionally high rainfall events so and that's what we're seeing we're certainly where I live in the middle of Scotland, we're not actually seeing any more rainfall, but the change in rainfall patterns has been really profound. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've spoken to quite a lot of older farmers around here who are in their, their 60s, 70s and, and even 80s. And they're absolutely convinced that it's not the amount of rainfall over a year, it's it's the distribution of rainfall, mm-hmm. some of which happens. We can get a month's rainfall in two days now. And and it's the healthy soils which are able to cope with that better, and the less healthy soils which show uh, the the worst damage in terms of um, appalling uh, soil erosion. Some of which in my areas running into the Lyon or running into the River Tay, and uh, it's it's those extreme weather events that really highlight the problems, and that's what's result in this complete explosion of interest in soil health, which is wonderful. Perhaps it's happened a little bit late, but. It's certainly true to say better late than never. And in Scotland, the other thing is, I think we've caught the problem uh, at an earlier stage than some of the farmers in England. I mean, some of the some of the soils in the in the southeast of England, sort of East Anglia area, are are horrifically badly damaged. And because of our tendency to keep on with mixed farming practices, and perhaps our rotations are a little bit less um not less intense exactly but uh we've 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 stuck slightly more to having livestock and perhaps slightly uh, fewer maybe more crop breaks slightly different farming practices our soils are not generally and i am speaking in general terms they're not generally as damaged as some of the most intensively farmed arable soils in england you can you can 
definitely see you, you definitely see that for like a this year where um some of the farms that have a more traditional um kind of mixed crop and there is a FYM or slurry or chop straw or there is something coming into the to the the mix you see that um you saw that this year in the crops and how they were able to cope with that prolonged droughty spell um yeah. in the middle of summer with us I, I haven't looked to see what it was now but we're roughly uh, where Amiston Haven roughly that area takes between 750 and 800 mil of rain a year and we were sitting at 260 mil or something in the middle of the summer and, 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 and I mean that's going to come and well it, is, it has come now uh, and, and it's going to come, like you see, in these in these rainfall events. Yeah, now so. that it's raining, it probably won't stop again until it's all flooding. Um, it is definitely getting more and more extreme. So you've both mentioned having healthy soils. What constitutes as a healthy soil? I would say a soil which it drains well in periods of heavy rain. It holds nutrient well. It's resistant to all the stresses which might get resilient, I should say, um, well, and resistant, I suppose, to, to all the stresses which farming life might put on it and which at the same time can consistently, and this is really important, consistently produce yields of good yields of, of quality crops. In a good year, it's amazing what any old soil can produce but it's the bad years, the very droughty years or, or the very, very wet years where you start to see really serious problems. So I would say it's a soil which, which provides good ecosystem services and can reliably produce uh, good yields of, of quality crops. And you, you, can, you can tell a healthy soil, but we, we can talk about that as, as this discussion goes on, that there's lots of ways of measuring whether your soil is, is healthy or not. It's, yeah, it's trying to get the balance, isn't it, between the the kind of physical workability of the soil that it's the the, the structures there and it can cope with these events, and then and having the kind of biology in there as well that is able to 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 to, to deal with the, whatever is thrown at, and having the nutrient cycling and and kind of the ability to grow a good crop. Uh, by by giving nutrients and, and good good nutrient exchange and water exchange with it with the crop as well. Well, that's right, and and I think we've I think I think we're beginning to be more aware of the kind of stresses which are, are caused to soils and which which soils have to to resist, and um, so we can think very easily about, for example, heavy rainfall events, a large amount of rainfall over a relatively short time frame. That is a pretty serious stressor. Also a drought. And and the other obvious one is is traffic. So so machinery moving across the soil surface and, and also cultivation machinery that's that's disturbing the soil. So those are the things that we most often think about as stresses to soil. But there are other things which perhaps we haven't thought about as much. And that includes pesticides. And uh, now that we're talking, uh, it's, it's very exciting to me as a person involved with sustainable agriculture and, and organic farming for a very long time. It's very exciting to see the 
the revolution that's happening at the moment in agriculture where more and more farmers, virtually every farmer in fact, is beginning to question uh, what regenerative farming actually is and whether whether regenerative farming is, is for them. And of course, regenerative farming is for is different for, for everybody depending on what type of farm they actually have. But regenerative farmers are starting to think about the impact of synthetic fertilizers and also pesticides on soil health. And um, it's something that, that this is, is, is very controversial. But and, and some people are pretending that it doesn't happen, it doesn't exist. But there, I strongly believe that many, well, pretty much all synthetic pesticides have impacts, deleterious impacts, on non-target organisms. And a lot of those you can't see. So we, we do know, um, we know about some of these impacts, but there's been a review done fairly recently um, about looking at gathering together the, the scientific evidence for the deleterious impacts, the undesirable impacts, which synthetic pesticides can have on non-target organisms, including soil organisms. Uh, so we know we know about some of the factors which uh, cause problems to things like, for example, the larger things like earthworms, and also fungal networks through through cultivation. But what about the impact which, um, well, perhaps the direct impact which pesticides can have on some of those organisms, and also the less direct impact which things like. Um, say, uh, phosphate fertilizers and also um, nitrogen, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers can have on the natural nitrogen fixers and also the mycorrhizal fungi. We really do not know all that we need to know, but all this is a, a discussion to be had about, about soil health. So there's no doubt whatsoever that some pesticides, I'm not saying all, are, are also a form of stress on the organisms which inhabit the soil and which we could be, we could better be using, I think, to, for our own ends. And of course, the increase in interest in this is getting more and more at the moment because of the price of fertilizers, which is going through the roof. Yeah, David, um, Audrey's just mentioned about different cultivations. Um, what sort of impact do different cultivations have on soils? I think Audrey mentioned it as a as a stress on on the soil and about it's about trying to to get a system that suits the type of soils that you're working with as a farmer. I think I think that's that's really important because there is not a you know, there's not a silver bullet that 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 works in every situation uh, on every farm uh, in the in the in in the country and I think that's where. You mentioned regen, the regen farmers as well, and and these guys that are going down this route, it it, it takes a long time to get there, and it and it and it takes time to to let our soils sort of um, sort themselves out a little bit, get their own house in order a, a bit, because it it need, there needs to be a reorganisation in the soil to be able to to cope with it. I mean, what we've seen. With some of the guys that are that are moving to sort of more reduced tillage, um, is that that it takes time, uh, and it it's probably a transition that is required. It's like it's like um, you can't go cold turkey on some of these things, and it's just trying to to actually reduce cultivations 
as much as possible. And and I think it's driven by a few things. It's driven about soil. It's driven by the cost of fuel and actually the cost of machinery to go through and and do these uh, do these applications. Is that it, it, it? It's about thinking about the minimum amount of cultivation that you need to create a a, a good seed bed that is going to establish a crop the way you want it to. And and a lot of crops like winter crops in general are that little bit more resilient that they can handle a little bit, um, let's just say, rougher treatment than how they're sown and, 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 and a bit a bit of a rougher sort of seed bed. And because they've got a longer growing period, they've, they've got a bit of time to be able to readjust to that. What I would say we do find is that, that some of the crops that are in um, the spring crops, uh, oats, is okay usually, but spring barley is a little bit fickle when you try to to reduce cultivations. Um, but we have seen certainly soils that have had less cultivations, as in moving from a plough-based system to a to a, a strip till or a, a strip till system, where we've seen massive improvements in soil structure and health in a and, and increase in soil organic matter in not a huge amount of time. And we're speaking within, and certainly within 10 years, you can, you'll definitely see a massive difference in it. And that is, that's had a massive knock on to businesses as in their, then they've got less capital tied up in kit. They've got, they've got better, more healthy soils. They've got a really simple system. They've, they're able to concentrate on other bits of the business a bit more. Um, but it's all about putting the soil as the main part of the business and the main focus on what they're trying to do. And then, and then that, maybe that's, that takes a, a, a few years to get into, and then and then you can start reducing things further. Then you go down to no-till or, 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 or disc drilling, but, but it's really very dependent on what soil type you're on, what weather conditions you're trying to grow in, and actually just trying to come up a little bit of trial and error, not being too scared to... to uh, to make mistakes and and learn from them and and kind of um and kind of move on move on for there, but it is there is big differences as in soils that can handle a lot more rain than than we've seen are able to are like walking on a sponge basically when you're walking through them and are definitely bringing bigger benefits to the business. Oh, yeah. than just growing a crop. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and uh, a soil which has developed a strong, resilient structure can much better withstand traffic. Yeah, you mentioned um, before, uh, David, about organic matter in the soil. Why is that so important? Organic matter is, is it's, it's really important for lots of different things. I mean, Audrey spoke about um, ecosystem services and how, how it, it benefits lots of different things. I mean, it, it's effectively how how carbon is stored partly within the, within the soil and it's and it's our i mean carbon gets a gets a bad name but it's our energy source it's how we grow our plants it's how our it's how it's how um soils operate and how it's it's their energy source so i mean organic matter is really is a is is the organic fraction that there is within the soil and and uh, we've got lots of different ways of trying to trying to measure that and it's by having organic matter in the soil, 
it it allows our soils to be um to be more resilient. I mean, for every things for every percentage of organic matter increase, it can hold uh, it can hold an inch more 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 rain. Can it's 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 oh, it's like a sponge, I suppose. There's lots of different ways of trying to explain what it is, but it, it it's a really important part of our soil. Yeah, can I just add to that and say that when I went to college in the first instance. Um, I won't see how long that ago was it, but it was quite a long time ago. But uh, I was being taught by my lecturers that we we basically don't need organic matter returns. They're they're not really important. And synthetic fertilizers can provide all that the the plant actually needs. And there were people around there that believed that was the truth. I have to say, I never ever really did, but I didn't understand quite why organic matter was so important. Because in, in organic farming, what the, the whole ethos is, you feed the soil first, then that soil feeds the plant. So you're putting complex organic compounds down. I'm not talking about rock phosphate, that's a bit different and, and, uh, and so on, permitted by fertilizers. But the whole idea is to let the soil feed the plant. So you're putting complex organic compounds down and then you're relying on the soil bugs to break that down. So big bugs, first of all, like earthworms and microarthropods, and then the soil microorganisms. But the truth is that the plants can only take up, with a few exceptions, they can only really take up very, very simple compounds, like, for example, um, nitrate and ammonium for nitrogen, and the orthophosphate anions for, for, um, for phosphorus. So if that's the case, why don't we just you know, bypass the bugs then and and feed the plant directly, which is what people were doing. And of course, it works up to a point. It works in hydroponics, for example, where there's no soil at all and you're basically just supplying the plants with, with nutrients in a, in a nutrient solution. But that, when we started doing that over the longer term, the bugs just began to die out because they didn't have a job. If you don't have any organic matter in a soil, then the soil structure begins to collapse and then you've got really serious problems as we've discussed earlier. So if you do have regular inputs, and I believe that that's what we should be looking at, regular inputs of organic matter, then you're regularly feeding the organisms that basically exude all the gums that bind the, the soil particles into aggregates, which forms a strong structure and that lets air in, it lets water in, it lets water and air move right through the soil profile and allows the soil to function. If you don't have that organic matter, then structure is what's under threat and that's what underlies good soil health. You can't have a healthy soil if you've got a poor structure because then you start to run into drainage problems, lack of access, the plant roots can't access nutrients and water and air properly. So we need that organic matter, and 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 we're, we we now recognise that. Glad to say, more than ever we do, we did before. Okay, so should farmers be going out and digging a hole so they can then go and have a look and see what the soil structure is in their fields? Absolutely not a shadow of a doubt about that. The easy, the best tool to start looking at soil health is a speed. I would second that. Yeah, it's it's the one thing that is in the boot of my car all the time that uh, that I'll go with me when I'm crop walking, and I'll just go with it, wandering along, and I'll dig a hole every now and again and see what it's looking like. It's really, really important that people understand what a good soil looks like and what a poor soil looks like in their own system, in their own fields. 
So looking at good and poor areas within fields, go and have a dig underneath a hedgerow or somewhere that's undisturbed and see what that soil looks like. Give it a smell. I'm, I'm a great believer in smelling a soil. Oh, yeah. Um, You're so right. To see what... It's like, uh, it's like a good wine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds a little bit geeky, but it is. You could just, you can smell what a good soil, uh, what a good soil smells like. And, and, and that is really dependent on you spoke about the history of a farm and what that looks like there's a lot of um arable farms now that that had a long history of having livestock on them and that they're they're kind of riding on that history at the moment and 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 being able to see those sort of differences in fields and kind of fields around the stead and that would have always been in grass at one point because they were nice and handy and 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 seeing what they look like and then and then some of the more intensively managed arable fields and see what they look like as well it's it's massively important and uh, if, if anybody if farmers don't know what a good soil look like looks like then then i would highly encourage you to go and uh, go an event go and see some of the things that's ongoing see what see what soils look like and try to understand what what a good soil in your situation looks like so is there a difference in testing for soil organic matter and soil carbon yes um soil carbon is basically a a fraction of soil organic matter um I think it's normally thought to be about about 0.58 or round about or around about 58% of the of the organic matter there's different different conversion factors depending on quite the method you're using um which brings me to a really important point when you're testing on a farm for soil organic matter the method that's used is very very important you cannot and certainly should not use one method one time and then five years later you use another method and that's because there's no you can't you can't do an easy calculation to convert one result with one method to another result using the other method because because it depends the 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 results you get really depends on on soil type probably more than anything else um but the method that most farmers use would be a, a method called loss on ignition and that it's a little bit of a blunt tool, and that's basically you dry the soil, you mill it to two mils, and then you burn it in a furnace, um, and you burn off all the organic matter. But it's you should never change your lab if you're doing that, because there's no internationally or even nationally agreed standard method for doing that loss and ignition test. So you're always better if you're if you're doing that to try and stick with the same lab year on year on year, so that you can track changes. The other problem with loss and ignition is it'll also burn any coal fragments that happen to be in the soil. So I would never use that, for example, on my uh, mine restoration soils because it overestimates the, the, the sort of useful fraction of organic matter in the soil. And the other unfortunate thing is when you're burning off organic matter, you're also unfortunately burning off some of the inorganic carbon, for example, in calcareous soils. So it's particularly... Uh, you, you would watch when you were using it on that type of soil, on, on soils with a lot of inorganic carbon. It's not so much important for, for, for Scottish soils, which are not so many of them are, are calcareous. So the other method that's frequently used is uh, one called dumas carbon. Now that 
uh, kind of digests the soil and, and, and measures the amount of organic carbon that's in the soil. And then you use a calculation factor to, to estimate the amount of total soil organic matter in it. So that's, that's another very useful test. So those are the two main tests used for total organic matter in soils. But the other thing that's come about recently, I think it was a couple of years back, the laboratories, many of the big labs are starting to sell a test called active carbon or um, labile carbon. And that is the fraction of your soil organic matter, which is relatively fresh. And that's quite a useful test too, because if you're, you're unlikely to see soil organic matter through loss and ignition or dumas carbon change very quickly, it changes really very slowly and it can take decades to change after you've instigated new management practices on your farm or a field on your farm. Whereas if you're measuring active carbon, that is the kind of fresh, relatively recently added fraction of the organic matter. And that changes much more quickly in response to management changes. So if you want to track that over time and you see it beginning to go up, maybe testing every, say, five years or so, then that's an indication that your management practices are liable to result in changes long term in total soil organic matter. So it's a it's a very useful thing to do as well. So those are the three main test me me methods that I would I would I would advise using. David, anything to add? I think I think the point and 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 sticking to a lab and sticking to analysis is really is really important that that um, you need to be comparing apples with apples and not apples with pears. So you need to, you need to make sure that that you can it's a bit like a like our baseline. Uh, pick a lab, understand the way that it's done. Make sure the analysis is done to what suits your soils, uh, wherever you are in the country, and 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 make sure that 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 gives you the 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 best results or the most accurate results for what you're trying to achieve. And if you don't know how to interpret results, or you don't know how to choose a lab, I would strongly suggest contacting an independent facts qualified agronomist, somebody that understands soils, ideally not somebody that's attached to somebody who's selling fertilizers. There's some very, very good guys, very good guys, but um, in this and, and, and some very good labs attached to these companies as well. And that may well be the cheapest and the best for you. But in some cases, I've seen farmers use uh, the English soil analysis methods, the ADAS methods for testing soils. And I, I, I think that's probably not ideal. And sometimes a different method for pH as well in comparison to what the SAC method is. Sometimes it's fine, sometimes it's not. It depends on your soils. So I think the importance of independent advice here in helping to select a lab um, can't be overstated. By the sounds of things, that's for all soil testing, not just for organic matter Absolutely. and carbon, but also pH and P and K using the same labs is yeah. worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Just make sure it's 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 suited to your system and understand it. Try try and uh, understand the methodology and why it's done the way it's done. I think that's important as well. So if you've looked at your soil and you realise you have a bad soil, what sort of things could you be thinking about doing to improve the soil? I suppose it's it's really kind of 
checking through the list of things to see what is actually wrong with it. So dig your hole, look and see if it's compaction that's an issue, and um, see if you can see any changes in the soil soil coloration through the profile. See if there's any roots doing any funny things as they go through the soil. If they if they go down straight and then go off an angle, or can see a plow pan or see a bit of compaction. Um, and really, before you do any cultivation, any kind of remedial work, that's the first thing you need to do. Because if you are going to go in, you can do. Uh, you don't want to do recreational tillage, and you don't want to be trying to fix a problem that either is not there or creating another problem on the back of it. So, um, it's still quite common to be doing that. Yeah, I saw I saw a farmer. I wouldn't say where. Um, I saw a farmer out the other day with a subsoiler. It was bucketing with rain. The soil was soaking. There's no way that that can have been doing much in the way of good. Not, not in that in that particular conditions. So, and and there was another case recently. Again, really better not say because it's quite close to where I live. A farmer was putting lime on his fields. Now, I know that soil's uh, it's got there's a calcareous uh, drainage coming down into it. There's limestone just above it. The soil pH is about six point five. It does not need lime. But he didn't test it. He hadn't tested it. But because there was rushes in the field, he said, ah, this field's sour, lass. He says, it's sour, sour. This will sort it. This lime will sort it. Actually, no, it won't. You know, so, so sometimes you do have to look quite hard and understand, first of all, what the problems are, as you were saying, David. Make sure you're, do you're doing the relevant investigations, the relevant tests, and understand what remedial you're act action you're actually doing so that you're going to genuinely sort the problem. And there's still some... There's still some kind of, um, well, my grandfather did this and it worked for him, therefore it'll work for me out there in some pockets. Green fingers is not enough. Understanding why you're, why you're doing things is really quite important. Yes, definitely think about what you're doing and don't just dive straight in. It's amazing how many people do still say my father or my grandfather did it and they just keep carrying on. You mentioned lime there. How should you be sampling a field to decide for your lime? Is it better just to do a field sample or some people use GPS soil sampling now? What's the best methods for doing it? I, th I don't know what you think, David. I think it is cost effective to be doing GPS sampling for lime. I wouldn't actually say so for P and K. I, I remain unconvinced, although perhaps with high fertilizer prices now, if you're doing it anyway, then it could well be worth doing. But for pH, definitely. I, I would be yeah I'd be GPS sampling for uh, for for pH and lime. I have seen massive differences in um I wouldn't say in in the top end of the yield, but I've seen the consistency of yield improve through through fields I ma massively by doing it, and it's not. The thing to remember is you're probably you're sampling if you're going around the farm for in a five year cycle GPS sampling it probably needs it probably needs three turns it probably needs fifteen years of doing that to be able to to get the 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 pH leveled up and um I did it as a few years ago on a farm we were on the second turn and I I actually went through to see what the distribution of pH was between the first time and the second time. 
And what we had done is is we had got rid of the tails, so we'd got rid of the the really low pHs, and we'd got rid of the really high pHs. And what we'd been targeting a pH of six point two, but what we actually found is we could have we could have come down the scale ever so slightly. We could have come down to six point one or six, and we still would have had quite a tight yeah. distribution that would have that would have made a difference. So I. I, I I would be even certainly in an audible situation and probably in a in a grassland situation I would be GPSing for for um for pH. I must admit I'm a little bit more skeptical about P and K, um, but but um, yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. If I was starting off, then pH is where I would start with, and and actually not worry too much yeah. about P and K to start with, and maybe in once you've been around all the farm mm -hmm. once or twice, then start thinking about P and K because obviously that's a, the pH is a thing that's, mm -hmm. that makes P and K more or less available to the crop. So, um, yeah, especially P. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's definitely good advice. Um, I'm sure there's some funding at the moment uh, which people can get for soil sampling um, under preparing for sustainable farming. Um, so if you are looking at doing some GPS sampling for the first time, I think it'd be worthwhile having a look at the funding. Um, it's definitely worth trying it out. So if a farmer is looking to go and improve their soils, should they um, have some kind of baseline to start with? And then what sort of things should they be thinking about doing? Yes, that is one of them. It's probably my my biggest hobby horse um, when I when with existing clients and also with with new clients, and I come across so many farmers at regenerative farming conferences who are talking about what they've done and great practices, and it sounds as if their soils are very healthy, but then when I ask them that the ultimate question, I'm virtually always disappointed, and that question is, where's your evidence? What's your baseline? What does your baseline data say? You're talking about my organic farming, my organic matter contents have increased massively, my yields have increased massively, and my soils are in much better health. I believe them, but they've got absolutely no evidence because they've got absolutely no baseline data. So few farmers have taken soil organic matter contents or measured it over the years. So what I'm trying to ask my clients now to do is get measurements. But it's not straightforward. It's an absolute minefield. If you were to, um, what the, the the biggest, the, one of the most fundamental problems is soil organic matter contents change quite slowly. It's taken us probably fifty years to get to this low point in soil organic matter contents in some of our arable soils. So we're not going to, whatever we do, we're not going to change soil organic matter content for the better overnight. It's going to take, at the very least, a good few years, if not decades. So how do we measure that we're going in the right direction? Well, getting good baseline data is important, but if you were to measure loss uh, soil organic matter by walking across a field in a W pattern, taking, say, 28 subsamples, mixing them together in a bucket, getting a result, and then doing the same thing four years later. If you walked in a very slightly different W pattern, say even as little as a few feet to the left or right, you could end up with a result that was maybe a bit less, maybe say 10% less than what you had before or 10% more. But it doesn't mean that what you've done in terms of management practices 
has changed that soil organic matter content because unfortunately the variability across a field can sometimes be greater than the variation in organic matter contents between years and that's really frustrating for the farmer. So if what you're trying to do with soil health is measure whether you're making any difference, then one of the best ways to do it is to select four points. Now you might do that randomly, select four points in a field, or you might have a look at soil properties and try and make sure that you've changed, you've chosen say four or six representative points in that field, maybe a bit in the slightly wetter area, a bit in the sandy silt loam area, for example, and a bit in the sandy loam texture area, if you know your soils well enough, which I would suggest farmers do, do get to, to know their soils well enough to understand the soil maps a bit. Pick three or four areas and then GPS locate set the, the, the point that you've picked. So you would use what three words or a, a, a 10 figure ordnance survey map reference for, for, for those sampling points. Fix them forever. And then you you can also record where they are in terms of, you know, however many meters from the, the, the fence post and however many meters from a, another fence post in a different direction, for example. So fix those points. And then what I do is include the sampling area in that GPS, around about that GPS located point. So it should be a 10, sorry, a five meter radius circle from that point. So you'll, you'll have maybe four or even six circles, which are 10 meters diameter or five meter radius centered on a GPS located point, which you write down and you can do soil health sampling within those zones. Now, this was a system I've been using for a while. It's been, um, it's, it was, uh, I think, publicised under the Great Soils Project, which is now being run, I think it's just finishing or finished. Uh, ADAS and uh, NIAB TAG have been doing that. And uh, there's information about how to do this soil sampling. And within these 10 metre diameter circles, you repeatedly sample, and it's several samples, subsamples from within there. You can um, measure earthworm counts by digging a uh, 20 by 20 by 30 centimeter deep uh, square hole, for example, and you can take samples as well. Again, not one sample, normally it's several samples from within that, that five meter radius circle, and then send that off for soil organic matter, or you might also choose to do um, soil carbon stock, for example, which means measuring your soil depth and then testing for soil organic matter. But, you, but by, by um, sampling within those discrete circles, you're kind of eliminating the across-field variation, which can really muck up any trends which you're having over time. So I'm not suggesting to do this for, for um, applications of P and K or applications of Lyme. It's about getting good baseline data for measuring soil health now and also then comparing your progress over the years as you're, you're making management changes. Now, I've not talked there about soil test methods because that's a different argument. That's a different set of questions. But, but that's about um, how to get good baseline data. David, do you have anything to add? That what we're trying to do is so bespoke to the farm that yeah. that being able to, to sort of have that baseline data. I, I like to be able, it's back to the old, you need to measure it to be able to manage it. And, and being able to get rid of that variation 
out of that by by being a bit more specific and and having a proper sampling protocol as to how you're going to do that is really important because you're right a lot of, a lot of guys are saying that there is improvements but what actually are they what, yeah, what are they physically seeing that is making a difference and what practices are we doing that is making the biggest difference is there is is it is it a holistic thing that it's lots of little things that's add into it or is it uh, when I really mentioned cover crops, but 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 kind of putting a cover crop in and having a living root there, and the the benefits that that has in the uh, to the soil structure and and to the to the water and to the bugs, and is it that that's having the benefit? I mean, I've got I've got some guys that are using cover; they're still ploughing, but they've got cover crops in their rotation, and and that seems to be having a, a benefit, but it's not quantifiable so how or, or we haven't measured it in a way that is quantifiable let's put it that way so 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 thinking about that and, and doing it that way is I, I think it's really important you need a baseline you need to know where you're starting from and and and, and even a little bit of a target as to where you want to get to and how what, what's the important things that uh, where the main issues are that you want to work on and then try and identify the the different management methods that 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 improves that i'm sure it's not too late to take a baseline now even though you've started it you can still keep improving from what it is now never too late never never <laughs> too late and you you can i mean this is it this is organic farming research has always been like that it's always been a systems approach where you're using a lot a wide range of partial solutions in order to be able to prevent pest diseases and weeds rather than control them because there's nothing you can well very little in organic farming that you can do to control these things once they're actually there so it's a systems approach and and the research in organic farming that i believe has been the best has been this systems research where you're using a whole range of of different techniques um to to prevent and control problems but it's a very it's much more difficult to to research stuff like that and because which, as you say, David, which which aspect has actually, um, what 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 is it that you've done that has actually made the changes? Well, in reality, it's probably lots of things that have had a beneficial impact. And in the past, scientific research surrounding agriculture has been very reductionist, hasn't it? And and this is the problem. We need to be looking far far uh, more widely. A reductionist research where you're looking at does this chemical control this pest yes or no how well uh, or not well at all and but quite often in the past i've i've seen lots of flaws in that type of work because it doesn't take into account the impact on non-target organisms so with 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 um as as regenerative farming begins to develop and soil health becomes more important i think I think science, agricultural scientific research is going to become much more complicated, but also the impact of the farmer is going to become much bigger. In other words, it's more and more important for farmers, given that every single farm is different, to be doing his own suck it and see type experiments. Not, I mean, many of, many of the results that I'm seeing just now that are really valuable, and I feel I can therefore take them and chat with other farmers about them, it's it's not much more than anecdotal. 
we do not have the money to run replicated field trials on on farms anymore. We just don't. And, and a farmer doesn't have the time or the energy. Um, it's not his priority. So in some cases, the changes that the farmer is making are to one field or one half of a field or a strip in a field and having to draw conclusions from that and then gradually move his whole system on year after year after year. And at the same time, ideally, in, in an ideal world anyway, chatting to his neighbours to see what they've tested, what they've tried. And it's 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 science, it's agriculture and, and agricultural science moving on in a completely different way. I'm not saying that research institutes don't have a role but the role will be probably a bit different moving forward and the role of the farmer will be greater. I think the important thing to think is that that if if a farmer wants to, he has got his own lab sitting in front of him in his own fields. And there's one or two guys that, that I now know that have said to me, he says, look, I'm taking a percentage of my area, maybe 5%, of my productive area, and that is the bit that I'm having a play on. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see what difference I can make by using cover crops or, or looking at soil organic matter or chopping straw or, and and you, you have the ability to, to do that. You just need the willingness and the, and just to think a little bit outside the box and not being in the the kind of. The, the sort of I-bean mentality and challenging some of the things that that we have always taken for granted a little bit. And I think this year, because it, this year's been quite an interesting year for lots of different reasons, as in the way the weather's been and also in the price of fertilizers and inputs. And I have a lot of guys that have that have reduced nitrogen back on crops this year because of the price, driven driven solely by the price. And actually, we've had as good yields, if not better than we've had in other years, all because the sun shone a little bit more than it did on average, and we put 20, 30, 40 kilos less nitrogen on. Um, so I think... We need we need to think about that and need to think about what's that, what that's telling us and what what how we then learn for that as in what our management practice is going to be for us next year on the back of that. Yes, and the the other plus will be to the environment because if you're applying less nitrogen, especially well only really where you're applying it in such a way that that it's genuinely meeting crop demands. You're not applying it too early or at the wrong crop growth stage or whatever. Um, it's highly likely that there will be fewer, uh, you know, less less nitrogen loss to the environment through nitrate leaching down the way and through losses upwards from uh, ammonia or or uh, nitrous oxide. That's pretty much a given. So the farmer, it's a win-win-win-win. You know that it's 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 beneficial all round. But we still got to be careful. I think you've always got to be very careful. Playing devil's advocate here, that um, soils are very forgiving, but you wouldn't want to be running yourself into a system where suddenly the soil just cannot anymore provide enough P and K or enough nitrogen. So you've got to keep a keep a weather eye on what's going and constantly be monitoring and mindful farming. I think that's that's what it's about really. Um, thinking, well, I haven't needed that nitrogen. Where else is it coming from? 
and uh, what, what, what else could I, what else could go wrong in future and how can I make sure that that doesn't happen? That's great. Um, so just to finish off, what is your one top tip, tip, Audrey, that if you want farmers to go away from listening to this podcast, what would you like them to do? It was really, it would be really um, baseline data. And I think look after your, your soil organic matter. So that means carry a spade. So it's, it's, it's one tip really, but, but um, carry a spade, get good baseline data if you don't already have it and start looking at your organic matters because there, there is, there's a huge amount of really bad stuff, real rubbish at the moment being talked about, about soil carbon and how farmers can, can, you know, save the world in terms of uh, sequestering vast amounts of soil carbon. Some of that's true for some soils and other farms, their soils are pretty much healthy and it would be difficult for them to sequester more carbon. So, Get your get your spade out and actually get good baseline data for soil health parameters, including soil organic matter. Same question for you, David. I'm going to pinch Audrey's one. Actually, it's about being mindful. It's about actually thinking about what has happened, why why something has has had the reaction that it's had. So, by reducing nitrogen, have we? Why has our has our yield stayed up? What's the other things that's affecting it? And trying to have that kind of holistic approach to to what what we're um, what you're trying to achieve, and and also thinking about your own farm as a bit of a as a bit of a a lab to try your own trials out on, and don't be scared of trying someone a little bit wacky or trying someone a little bit different. Um, your neighbours will only speak about you for a couple of weeks and then there'll be something else <laughs> that goes on. So um, just, just, we're not going to drive the industry forward if we always all do what we've always done. We need to, we need to push things on and, and try things a little bit different. Yeah, definitely need to start thinking outside the box. And to be honest, a lot of the farmers will go and try something, but there's probably a farmer in a different area of Scotland who might also be doing the same thing because they've thought to try it as well. Yeah, share knowledge as well. Peer-to-peer -peer learning is, is a massive thing, especially in some of these subjects where, um, there, like we say, there's not the same science background to it. Um, uh, and 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 share that information, whether that's through through discussion groups or, or or through online forums or WhatsApp groups or whatever it is. There is loads of ways now to find out information, and uh, I think trying to share as much of that as possible is is really important. Thank you for joining us today. I'm sure you'll agree with me that David and Audrey have been excellent speakers and a fountain of knowledge. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Cropcast. And if you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow our podcast available on the FAS channel. Or why not leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. You may also enjoy some of our other shows. Last week, I was listening to Agriculture and heard an exceptional episode with Sammy Kinghorn, a farmer's daughter and Paralympian. See you again next time. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.